Welcome, movie fans, to week three of our classic spooky film month on Real Old Reels. We are Robin and Lisa, about to discuss another great film. Today's episode is all about Terrence Young's Wait Until Dark, starring Audrey Hepburn and Alan Arkin. I didn't watch this one until my late teens, I think. And there is nothing like watching this movie for the first time. Oh my goodness. As the movie begins, because you know it's a scary movie. You, I mean, I braced myself to be scared. But after the first couple scenes, I was kind of lured into a comfortable state of mind with Audrey Hepburn starring. She's just so sweet and warm and just has a really calming presence. And you just don't think anything terrible can happen to Audrey, especially being blind. She's so warm and real and doggone it she's the world's champion blind lady but (laughs) the last 20 minutes though i still remember feeling absolute dread and desperation for her character Susie. yeah i mean it's it's so scary because you can put yourself in her shoes she's a totally normal person except she is blind so you can kind of put her and put yourself in your in her shoes but at the same time you're not blind you can't be like so scared that you can't handle it I guess (laughs) but I think think that really is the reason why Stephen King said it was the scariest movie of all time because if you really do put yourself in her place it's just even more terrifying right but um to sum up the movie events a little bit for those who haven't seen it or it's been a while like me the opening scene is of a woman named Lisa and a man sewing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and a man sewing up a doll with heroin in it. We realize quickly that Lisa is a drug smuggler and she's bringing drugs into America through Canada. She spots a suspicious man at the airport when she gets into America and hands off this doll to a fellow passenger, just a random guy named Sam, who with a, a made up story about buying the doll for a sick child, but didn't want her other child to be jealous when she sees it. So she promises to pick it up from him later. And he being the nice guy that he is just takes the doll. And in the next scene, we're introduced to Mike Tallman and Carlino who are Lisa's partners in crime. They come to meet up with Lisa in what they think is Lisa's apartment, but they're met by Rote instead, who reveals that he's killed Lisa for trying to step out on her own as a drug dealer and that they're actually in the apartment of Sam from the airport and his blind wife Susie's apartment. They're both out at the time. But Rote blackmails Tallman and Carlino to help him con Susie into helping them find the doll by pointing out that their prints are all over everything in the apartment. So Talman, Talman, Carlino, and Rote go on to act as their different characters to convince Susie that her husband has been cheating with Lisa and that he murdered her and he had given her the doll at one point. And so these three men needed to get the doll. Susie's and with the help of a neighbor girl Gloria who is sometimes very sweet and sometimes kind of kind of a stinker stinker finds out that these men are not who she thinks they are 
It's in the left-hand drawer, the doll. Glorious incident. See, I'm going to ask you once more. This is no time for mistakes. Are you sure the little girl saw the doll there? Are you sure this is all true? I'm saving my husband's life, aren't I, Mike? I'll be right back. You stay put. Make yourself a cup of hot coffee or something. Whatever you say, Mike. And she uses her blindness to her advantage by breaking all the light bulbs in the apartment and takes Rote on on her turf. The last eight minutes of the movie is one of the best climax scenes of all time. And it has this jump scare that made everyone in my family audibly scream. Adults and children alike. (laughs) And I knew it was coming. I had heard that there was a really, really big jump scare. And I still screamed. (laughs) It's it's definitely a movie that you shouldn't miss. And the climax, for sure, you shouldn't miss either. So you did watch it with your family. How did they like it? I think that it started a little bit slow for the kids. But they, they were picking up on it. But yeah, by the end of it, they were very, very into it. <laughs> yeah, same, same here with my kids. They were kept saying, you said this was scary. It's not scary. And then they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> At the end, <laughs> they were waiting on it. And it didn't disappoint. So let's talk a little bit about the background of the film and uh, some tri- some cool trivia that goes along with it. We've got another film based on a play, and the original cast apparently were great, but we won't really get into that this time. But Gloria, who was played by Julie Herod, was in both stage and the film production, so that's pretty cool. Audrey Hepburn, after the play, seemed to be very successful. Audrey Hepburn and her husband, Mel Ferrer, produced the film together, and they picked Terrence Young to direct. He was a friend of the couple, but Hepburn and Young met when... She was a volunteer nurse during World War II and in a Dutch hospital, and she actually nursed Terrence Young back to health, and that's how they kind of met and became acquainted, and she became an actress, and he became a director. Besides, so coincidental. What a fun little backstory to that. The relationship. Yeah. Besides her other thriller role in Charade, which we've got to do someday, it would be It was a very unusual character for Hepburn to play. She, of course, is known for her romantic leads and was America's sweetheart. And you just can't put Audrey Hepburn in peril. But I really like the way that she seemed to be eager to do these kinds of roles because she had been put in a, you know, a lot of typecast roles that she had done over and over. And she was ready to do some more challenging things or things people didn't expect her to do. Right. Yeah. Something I thought that was interesting about this role for Hepburn is that her husband, Fur bought the rights for the original Broadway show, hoping that he could persuade her to return to the stage. And she declined, though, and the role was given to the actress Lee Remick. And Lee Remick apparently did an amazing job herself and was nominated for a Tony Award for her depiction of Susie the Blind Woman on the stage as well but despite Remick being really great for the role Ferrer still wanted to see his wife Audrey Hepburn as Susie and asked her again to take the role for the movie and at that point Hepburn agreed because she thought 
that she was getting too old to play the romantic sweetheart roles and thought she should try something more serious. The villain was kind of a challenge to cast as well. A lot of people just didn't want to do it. They offered it to a lot of famous leading men at the time and they turned it down because they thought it was too risky. They didn't want to be put in that position of being mean to Audrey Hepburn. But I think it was all the more effective of a movie because she already had the audience's sympathy. The movie was was released around Halloween and it did really well, earning Hepburn another Oscar nomination. And people really enjoyed the movie. And I think it was really carried out well because of how people felt about Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. I guess one of the people that turned it down was George C. Scott. It would have been kind of interesting to see him in that role. I don't know if he would have done as a convincing job as um, Alan Arkin did as like just kind of this psychotic sociopath. It would have been a totally different interpretation. But she is really she's known in this role for being very convincing in her portrayal of blindness. And she definitely did her homework in preparing for the role. She trained at the New York Lighthouse for the Blind, where she learned to navigate her surroundings blindfolded. And she, you know, learned what it looked like to be feeling braille and to dial the phone and to feel the clock. She was very observant. And she reflected later on her preparation for the role. She had, quote, a stroke of luck, but really it was a blessing. She happened to meet a young blind girl and asked her to do something for her. She said, find your way around this room. And then Hepburn sat in a chair and watched as she found her way around and how she interacted with the objects around her. For the actual shooting, she also wore some blurry contact lenses, which sounds so miserable, but that helped her achieve the remarkable believability acting as a blind person. And people loved her treatment of the character because it felt very authentic. Yeah, I wonder how much she like tripped over herself or had a hard time if she was wearing blurry contact lenses the whole time. Yeah, it's sort of like a slapstick type of thing. You have to plan to fall and be believable as you stumble around. That being said, the experience was not so sunny for Alan Arkin, who became the who was cast as the villain in the film. Alan Arkin, a great actor who we, you and I, know best as kids from his comedic roles in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and The In-Laws, which I always, it was one of those movies that we recorded off TV and watch over and over, and I didn't realize till later in life that it was missing a bunch of key scenes that I was like, oh, that <laughs> sense. That's why it has the rating it does. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, some of our favorite movies have him in it and it made me very sorry to find out that he died just a few months ago I couldn't believe it from cardiovascular complications because I feel like I was still seeing him and stuff every once in a while he worked right up until he passed away and he was impactful in all his projects that I saw him in I think even though he didn't often have these leading roles like in wait until dark he always was really funny and always kind of shown in his roles. So sad to lose him. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he has like a, an interesting way of being funny too. He's not like over the top at all. He's just kind of, he's a little bit dry, but delivers his lines just really well in his like comedic roles. Like you said, I'm, I was really used to him in the in-laws in that really funny role. 
And so initially when he came on the screen, I thought, oh, he will never pull this off as the villain. But he is very convincing. And after the first few minutes, I completely bought into his like psychotic character. And I was surprised to learn that he wasn't so locked into his comedic role at the time, even though we've seen him in so many comedic roles since then, because this movie was actually his second time being in front of camera. And his first uh, role in front of the camera on on film was nominated for an Academy Award for the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. But I wasn't the only one who wasn't quite convinced with his character. Yeah, it surprises me that it's only his second role on film because, yeah, he did such a good job. And yes, as I said, the immediate impact of Wait Until Dark and his drug dealing villain role was not very positive, even though in general people thought the performance was very good and very effective. The press even asked him if he felt snubbed by not being nominated for an Oscar, but he responded, you don't get nominated for being mean to Audrey Hepburn. In later interviews, he said that he wished he hadn't even done it, that audiences at the time didn't really understand or relate to the drug dealing experience at the time, and it was too strange, so it was hard for them to appreciate his character. In interviews decades later, he still had a hard time talking about the movie, which is kind of sad to me because I think that would be the movie I'd want to talk to him about, or at least one of the films I'd love to talk to him about, but it was painful. And I think there are some actors who who love to embrace the dark side of their villain character, and you hear about the mental strain actors go through voluntarily for the sake of understanding horrible people they're meant to portray, but... Alan Arkin, at least upon reflection, wasn't this type of actor. He was of the opinion that you can't fully separate yourself from your character. And if you act evil, even for a character, it's still you doing it. Are you going to give me that doll, Susie? I can't. I don't believe you, Susie. I can't. I don't have it anymore. So when you want to tell me where it is, you're going to have to tell me. I got it in here. You're lying again. Oh, what is that? And he absolutely hated playing a dark, sadistic criminal, especially to Audrey Hepburn, who he said was as lovely as she seemed on screen. He said, the only thing I got out of it was meeting Audrey Hepburn, which was an extreme delight. In fact, he felt so bad after his performance he wrote a letter to give her apologizing for how he treated her and as it just it was something that just continued to haunt him he carried it for years should i send it should i not is it not even worth it then at an award ceremony she thanked all the leading men that she worked with throughout her career and she did mention alan arkin and he was so touched by her generosity he finally decided to send it just to and apologize for the way he acted This film has been tagged as the best Hitchcock film that Hitchcock didn't do. And it, I thought it was interesting. People said that because it does share some stylistic similarities. My favorite being very conscientious symbols or Easter eggs strewn about the film. A lot of clues left behind point to sight and, and blindness. Obviously the overarching theme is that, Though the main character is blind, she truly sees herself out of predicaments, right? 
blindness is no indication of bravery or resourcefulness, just as seeing is no indication of someone's goodness. Her character proves herself to be a a champion blind lady, as is the phrase that's borrowed from the movie, as she's put through a series of harrowing experiences and comes out victorious. Those are some obvious symbols in the movie. On the other hand, there are characters who all have perfectly seeing eyes, but they are deficient in other ways. Mr. Rote, the villain, for example, has very dark sunglasses, which are round, so they give him the effect of his eyes being black and allude to his villainy and secrecy. And her husband, Sam, is a photographer. So on the surface, he should have an observant perspective, but his character repeatedly is oblivious to the danger that Susie is in or the traps that the criminals set for him. So he's not really a bad guy, but he's just disappointing at times. Icebox needs defrosting, darling. Only my way this time. More practical. Use plenty of boiling water. What if I burn both my hands off your way? Don't. The uncontained's in the emergency drawer. If the weather's okay, try walking over to the studio and back. No cheating. Do I have to be the world's champion blind lady? Yes. (laughs) And also, Gloria... They mention in the script, it's uh, important that she has glasses and another another character who is impaired sight-wise, but she seems to see through the criminals and their plan. And finally, the doll. It could have been easily any other toy or stuffed object, so I kind of wondered why it was the doll. But the doll, I think, was meant as a parallel of Susie herself. It was the original object of the criminal's team's plan and it's kind of a metaphor for innocence i think really and with staring sightless eyes but because of what it carried the doll was more than it appeared to be as it was carrying the heroine as the movie goes mm-hmm. on Susie becomes the doll and the object of mr rote's villainy because getting the loot isn't enough for him anymore he has to be he wants to do evil things as Susie says But the best thing about Susie is that though she's limited and even fragile looking, she never considers herself a victim. She fights back and like the doll, she's more than what she appears to be on the outside. Yeah, it seems like it seems like as she experiences more and more confusion, the stronger and braver she gets. She gets by the end of the film, she's just kind of being more cunning and brave and telling Gloria the things that she needs her to help her with. And yeah, I mean, she's obviously very scared too at the same time, but brave too. Yeah. She tends to resent, I think Sam pushing her to be more independent because it's just frustrating for her. And she gets tired of having to live a different life than she's used to because she wasn't always blind. It was from an accident. And there's the scene that I think irks people every single time. (laughs) that I have seen this movie, somebody brings it up. And that's when Sam, when he's just found her behind the refrigerator. Yeah. I was going to mention, (laughs) (laughs) I was going to mention that scene. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, on the one, yeah, it doesn't seem like his finest moments as a husband. He's just like, yeah, come walk to me. Like, you know, you've just been through something awful. Now get up and figure out how to get over here to, yeah. So me with your how- apartment in shambles and dead bodies places. 
I was thinking about it though. And I was trying, obviously I think the, you know, the ending message is look, she's so independent, doesn't need people anymore. She's coming to her own, right? She's found her in her right. strength. I mean, I, I understood the point they were making for sure, but yeah. like be, I'd be pretty upset. <laughs> It's kind of a, <laughs> yeah. Walked in and I'm like cowering behind this fridge and and a little girl comes over to see if I'm okay, but he doesn't. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a favorite scene? We've already talked about the ending. So I'm just going to strike that off right away that, yes, the ending's great. Do you have another <laughs> favorite one though? <laughs> I mean, I felt like there were so many good scenes where it just showed like, I, I like it when you see who the characters are. I like scenes that have a lot of character development in them, I guess. And one of the scenes that I liked, even though like it was so frustrating to watch was when Gloria was throwing everything and just upset and just being the biggest butthead <laughs> of a kid. To close the door. Yes. But I didn't hear it shut. Okay, so it's open. Please shut the door. Close it yourself. You're nearer. Gloria, close the door. No! Gloria! No, I won't! Listen, you little monster, I won't put up with this one more minute. What's that? But you... You kind of you saw her pain a little bit. Like, I mean, she was kind of left alone a lot. Her parents were shoving, shuffling her back and forth and she's being teased at school. And I think it was important to just see her as a vulnerable kid instead of just a supporting actress. That's just going to help the story along. Like she has her own things going on too. I yeah, I do like that too. I like that part. I liked the. I also liked the part where they're in the apartment already. The three bad guys are in the apartment already, and she comes in, and they just are really quiet. And that actually, it's not a scary part, but it freaks me out just thinking, you know, thinking of her walking around and there are people just yeah watching her. <laughs> that wraps up. Wait until dark, and it's one I definitely recommend for Halloween. In fact, watch it on Halloween. It's a great one. I hope you all enjoyed our take on it and that you stick around, subscribe, and say nice things about the podcast if you're so inclined. Instead of releasing our fourth and final spooky classic movie next Friday, we can't wait and we're going to release it on Halloween for you to enjoy, though without the little kids because it's vintage nightmare fuel. Yeah, I remember watching this as not a young kid, but yeah, when a teenager. I think when? we were teenagers. Okay. But it was very frightening. <laughs> Especially frightening to children. It should come with a warning label. So we'll see you on Halloween. Bye.